0: Welcome to About Sustainability, a podcast presented by the Institute for Global Environmental Strategies, IGES. My name is André Marder, and I'm one of the hosts of the podcast. There's been quite a bit of a gap since the last episode. This is mostly because of some simultaneous changes that have taken place here. One of our core hosting team and founders, Bob, has left for a new job after many years with IGES. Another, Erin, is on a year-long sabbatical in Fiji, and Simon, who hosted last time, has been on paternity leave until very recently. So I'm holding the fort for now, but there are also a few new colleagues who may take part as co-hosts in future. One of them is Alice Yamabe, a policy researcher from the IGS unit on sustainable consumption and production. And Alice joins me in this episode. She had, however, been working on an unrelenting meeting schedule when she took part, getting only a couple of hours of sleep a night. So I did most of the talking for the hosts on this occasion. Our guest is Akihisa Kuriyama, another policy researcher in IGES's Climate and Energy Unit. He joins us to talk about SDG 7 on energy. We intended actually to tackle both SDG 7 and SDG 13 on climate action, but it turned out that there was too much to discuss on energy alone, so we'll leave SDG 13 for a future episode. Even SDG 7 covers a very broad range of topics, so we couldn't hope to be comprehensive, but we did manage to cover quite a bit of ground. If you find this interesting, please check the catalogue for episodes on other SDGs and additional topics. I started by asking Kuriyama-san to talk about the links between SDG 7 on energy and SDG 13 on climate.
1: So actually climate change happens because the societies emit... GHG emissions, greenhouse gas emissions from Mm -hmm. our all activities, including uh, daily life and also productions of manufacturing process and also transportation. So this is because our society is now relies on fossil fuel to manage our all activities Mm-hmm. So then when we burn fossil fuel, so CO2 emit, then CO2 is one of the greenhouse gases. So yeah, that is a fundamental uh, relationships between goal seven and 13. Mm-hmm. So which means when we uh, live our life, we have to uh, use energy. Mm-hmm. And also you have, we consume energy, then emit CO2. Then this uh, cumulative CO2 affect climate and also cause climate changes because average temperatures of uh and uh, the earth is getting mm-hmm. uh, increased owing mm-hmm. to greenhouse gases. So this is a strong connection between goal 7 and 13.
0: And then just before we get into more detail there, Can you just say a bit about the work that you're doing at IGES and how that relates to either of these goals or both of these goals?
1: Yeah, my work is related to creations of decarbonized societies. So decarbonized means societies without use of fossil fuel. So that Mm -hmm. means we need to create societies with mainly renewable energies. Mm -hmm. So first, uh, I I designed about uh, energy system with massive implementations of renewable energies. And also, Mm -hmm. energy system is a part of our societies. So when we introduce that decarbonized energy system, we have we also consider about our societies, including daily life and also productions of uh, goods and also providing services. So there are all things actually related to related to each other. In that sense, when we designed decarbonize societies we have to consider not only energy issues but also our societies itself and also any kinds of social issues which need to be addressed yeah actually it's a very broad topic but we prioritize some issues those issues then we think about solutions for each other
0: and Alessi, i just found out a few minutes ago that you I've also worked on decarbonization to some extent. Can you just say a, a word about how that, because it's so relevant here, just how, what exactly you've been working on and you're from a different team entirely. Your, your main work is on sustainable consumption and production. So are you coming at it from a different angle?
2: Yeah, exactly. So what uh, Kuriyama-san is describing right now as the the societal aspect of decarbonization. This is what we work on. We work on how we can make the decarbonized choices easier to make for people, just making sure that there's social acceptance around the transition to decarbonized societies. So yeah, you can't just change the economy, change the, the energy, and that will allow us to mitigate climate change. And this is the solution. This involves, as Kudy Emerson said, it's a very complex issue that is intertwined with our lives. So we have to also propose services, products that allow for that sort of decarbonized lifestyles without marginalizing communities, uh, without making the, the cost of energy more expensive. Um, So, yeah. Uh, so I kind of work on that um we uh, we sort of conduct workshops with a lot of local communities uh cities uh so at the very micro level and then we discuss with citizens what can be implemented in their daily lives and what are some of the barriers that they may experience in adopting such low carbon lifestyle actions and so based on those barriers that they experience then we we uh, we discuss with the local government and businesses and see what sort of solutions can be accepted by citizens and can be implemented. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's really interesting, but extremely complex.
0: Yeah, it's also, um, uh, just as both of you are talking now, I was wondering whether I should ask this question now or later, but let me, let me just sort of float it now and we can maybe get back to it later. But um, I guess one of the, you know, especially with this relationship between energy and society, um, and both of you spoke about you know kind of changing public attitudes, but that also relies on us being hundred percent sure that it's better to have renewable energy, right? And by better, that means not just um, for the long term good of the climate, but also for the communities involved. Um, and considering that, in at least in many cases, I don't know if it's most cases. I'm really and this is not my field, but in many cases. It's going to be the, the cheapest and quickest and easiest way to get a, let's say, a community or a village good, uh, supplied with energy is going to be to connect them to the grid, the fossil fuel grid, right? So how do you, how do you reconcile those ideas? On the one hand, you want to push renewable energy um, for the good of the climate. On the other hand, you want to get solutions to the people who need them most as quickly and as cheaply as possible.
1: Firstly, I have to say that uh, using renewable energy does not always mean that independent of energies or securing self consumption type energy systems or kind of isolated micro grids, something like that. So, Mm -hmm. because renewable energy needs actually large scale of land. land so when we mm-hmm. restore pv so we also find um enough land or rooftops so in particularly in japan uh in city area those land is not available so in that case mm-hmm. you have to think about uh how to secure renewable energies within japan so definitely this is not from cities the area. So we have to consider about uh, some local areas or uh, onshore wind farms. Mm-hmm. That means that when we use renewable energies, so grids is uh, power grids is one of the key infrastructures. So we don't need to consider mm-hmm. about self isolated uh, or independent energy supply system. So we mm-hmm. think about uh, how to integrate self production and consumption energy as well as procuring even energies outside of communities or boundaries of system. So mm-hmm. this is this needed to be in mind So otherwise it's yeah. gonna be really expensive uh, solutions to have uh, a massive amount of energies. Yeah in particularly for Japan's currently discussions, for offshore wind power is getting more uh, activated in because uh-huh. technology about floating offshore wind is getting to be available. Uh, many construction companies, not only power companies, but also construction companies, have pay attention to invest that offshore, floating offshore wind power. Then okay. uh power grid company also considering how to reform use of power grid, which can transmit electricity from offshore wind power to large power consumption area. Mm. Mm. Efficient. So yeah, that is uh, now happens in Japan.
0: So floating, that means that they're not attached to the bot- the sea bottom. They're actually they're yeah. free moving. Yeah. Right. But
1: uh, it's kind of a uh know, you think anchor, like a really long chain.
2: I, I heard I'm not so sure about this, but I heard that for Japan it had to be floating because the uh, the sea around Japan is extremely deep, right? the, um, the yeah, sea level. Yeah. Uh-huh, I don't know, okay. the, the ground under the sea is extremely deep. So that doesn't really allow the the usual grounded wind power um right, infrastructure. Okay. But what are the main barriers in implementing offshore wind power in japan because i'm just wondering maybe the fact that there are so many uh that japan is so prone to natural disasters such as typhoons or maybe tsunami can be a big issue um for implementing such infrastructure at the national level
1: so regarding barrier so firstly it's a a the cost of offshore wind power plant, but the cost is getting cheaper owing to the technological development. Mm-hmm. And also regarding the depths of water. So, yeah, you are right. So Japan have a really deep sea water level. However, uh, offshore, floating offshore power, so it needs only kind of anchor. So it's relatively low cost to fix mm-hmm. the floating uh, offshore power equipment into southern parts, compared with sea bedding onshore power plant, probably. Yeah. I, I forgot the proper English. Anyway, uh, the cost issue is getting to be improved. Then, uh, next uh, barrier is natural disaster. Actually, offshore power plant is strong against tsunami, because this is a floating, so and also tsunami, the height of wave is bigger when tsunami c- comes to cross the, to the shore. To, yeah, yeah. sure. But uh, mm. the height of tsunami is lower when when it's out, far at from, sea, right? yeah, yeah, far yeah. from sh- shore. Just one yeah. meter, two meter changes, yeah. so it's no problem. Yeah. And also regarding the typhoon, it was already demonstrated that uh, offshore. Protein offshore power is enough strong against typhoons. So, this is o- mm. also not a problem at all. And mm. um, now, the current uh, issue is probably consensus with local communities, in particular, the fishery uh, communities. So, yeah, there are uh, many bad experiences in Japan. So, there was conflict between fishery communities and power committees. So, now Many energy or research committees are uh, respect to, uh local committees' consensus, so they really take care about, uh that committee and also try to find way to create both benefits. So actually, there's a benefit because when floating offshore part implemented, there is a a kind of. Place where fish can.
2: A habitat, grow. maybe? Yeah, habitat, habitat, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So there's a kind of covenant about fishery side. So mm-hmm. then the power developers also provide those, uh, informations to communities and also they assess how, uh, affect numbers of fish mm-hmm. in those areas. So kind of those transparent communities uh, get, would solve, uh barriers uh, mm. about consensus on floating offshore apartments.
0: It's a really interesting example that I think it shows how diverse, you know, we went down a very specific path there. We we're talking specifically about floating offshore wind and also specifically about Japan. Um, infrastructurally, a very integrated and connected society, right? So you don't really have I mean people talk about rural communities in Japan but it's a completely different idea to what uh, rural means in in other parts of the world because getting renewable energy to people simply means uh, feeding renewable energy sources into the grid into the existing grid right uh, but then in other places uh you know like truly rural parts of the world in Africa and uh, Southeast Asia for example and again I might be showing my ignorance here but my understanding is that a lot of um of energy projects involve going to quite isolated uh, communities and supplying them with energy somehow, right? Um, is renewable energy always the best thing to do or is it sometimes better for the community if they um, maybe have a few diesel generators connected or uh, or maybe connect themselves uh, to a, a fossil fuel powered grid, um, you know, a few dozen kilometers away or something like that?
2: Um, okay, so actually, most of my the projects that I've worked on were based in Japan, but okay. uh, you were mentioning the rural communities in Japan, and we did a project in Akita in Odate, so that's pretty isolated. Well, not isolated, but it's it's a Relatively. characterized as a rural yeah community, um, mm-hmm. rural area. And they are actually also trying to implement um offshore floating uh, wind power. So, uh, but that's just the beginning Um and I think um what, when we were talking with the local communities there, they were mentioning that, uh, that to still rely on fuel just in case that there's a fear that if there's um, extreme cold season there, there's the risk that there might be a power outage. They need heat to survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so then they might rely more, uh, they find more re- reassuring, uh, to rely on the, the kerosene heating, I think, uh, oil mm-hmm. heating. And also just generally, I guess the power system might be a little bit vulnerable to earthquakes in general in Japan. So maybe that's mm-hmm. another issue when people just find it quite, uh, reassuring to have just a stock of fuel or oil in their house. But I, I also heard uh, that recently um, there were electric cars that were being promoted as a, like a big battery, a mobile battery uh, mm. that could be sort of um, linked with your, your your house and then provide energy for a, a short limited time. But then it's still, it can still be used in time of urgency.
0: By is this kind of getting into one of the main things that wanted to ask now and this is something that I, I really struggle to get any consensus out there it seems like so on on the one hand there's a lot of momentum behind renewable energy and then on the other hand there's um a lot of resistance um because of the well the argument is that that renewable energy is so solar and wind in particular which are the two big ones right um but they are both intermittent sources of of energy and if you have um now i'm thinking about not not rural communities but just society in general and especially cities actually a city cannot function on intermittent energy right because they they have to have a constant and reliable power source The, the one solution to that would be batteries but as far as i understand we don't have the technology to power cities on batteries yet and it might be a very long time before we do and then the other possibility is and this is really just my own speculation but the other possibility would be that that everything is linked up so that um when when it's cloudy in one place it's sunny somewhere else uh, another another area is feeding into the grid but then the distances could be huge right there could be hundreds of or thousands of kilometers even how do we deal with the issue of the intermittency of renewable energy especially wind and solar
1: yeah, that is actually key questions about renewable energies and also our team working on that issues. And currently we have published discussion papers about the 100% renewable energies. You have to think about the uh, intermittency of renewables energies as a, a two categories. First one is mm-hmm. a, a short term of intermittencies. Second one is a long term, or seasonable number intermittencies of renewable you know, energies. Mm-hmm. So, actually, counter measures for both uh, short term and long term are, are different. Uh, regarding mm-hmm. the short term of intermittencies, so there are many
0: solutions. So, yeah, of course. And, and so, so, sorry to interrupt you, but just just to define that, so short term intermittency means like on a day to day basis, right? Like a windy day yeah. And a... Or
1: weekly, uh, fluctuations. Okay.
0: Right. And uh, then, so and then, then the long-term means from season to season, like summer, you'll have more sun than winter, for example. Yeah. Okay.
1: So regarding to short-term intermittences, there are many technical solutions. So using batteries is one of the key solutions. There are many types of battery could be fitted into society, of course, EB is one of the large source of batteries. Electric um, vehicles. Yes. Now many business sectors consider about the uh, integrations of use of EBS and uh, power supplies as a source of flexibilities. And another uh, technical solutions could be demand response of residential sectors business sectors and industry sectors. So there's Mm -hmm. many types of demand responses. So regarding Mm -hmm. household sectors, for example, in the house with hot water supply system by heat pumps, Mm -hmm. that uh, system has hot water tanks or hot water storages. So which means that they can heat up water when renewable energy is available Mm -hmm. then Mm -hmm. that water used for any time so which means that Mm -hmm. the uh hot water can be uh,
0: acts like a battery basically right it's it's storing energy and releasing it later yes i heard recently about i mean there's some blue sky thinking and blue sky innovation going on in the sector and one of the ideas i don't think it's actually been tried on any scale but they're talking about having a it was like a giant tower um building a giant tower and putting something heavy at the top we're using like solar power to get something very heavy to the top while the sun is shining and then when the sun is not shining you let that thing slowly drop you know so that it creates its own energy that, that sort of thing so that whole battery idea or kinetic energy storage idea is a really interesting one
1: mm. yes yeah probably those are kind of storage type Demand response, I would say. So this uh-huh. is can, can be kind of demand response without compromising services mm-hmm. quality. Mm-hmm. But uh, probably when when we consider societies with large amount of energy, it's probably we have to uh, we need to consider us about other type of demand responses, such as which changes our consumption patterns, including energies and other services. Probably mm-hmm. our societies uh, relies on stable energy supplies by fossil fuel. So this is a kind of basis of our society. There are many services are developed based on stable energies, but the uh, energy is not stable. This is a kind of fundamental characteristics. Our societies need to be adjusted or transformed to societies with Intermittent renewable energies, so some part of our society could be adjusted as the uh patterns of renewable energies. So this is a really kind of advanced demand responses. So then we can reduce amount of batteries and also we can reduce amount of fossil fuel supplies by gas or coal fire power plant. So that could be also really interesting topics when we live with real energies. So of okay. course if our behavior is not changes, probably that advanced demand response is not possible. But if we mm-hmm. can change our minds or rules or regulations, probably it could be possible. Mm-hmm.
2: I find that really interesting. Um and I was wondering if you if you knew if that was a, an idea that was currently sort of talked about and if there were concrete ideas on how we can adjust our our society to more intermittent renewable energy sources. Maybe the current technologies that we have are partly already trying to um, be as efficient as possible or we we use most of them, our products at home uh, during the day so it's already pretty intermittent like we're not always active so would that be um, like a a more structural way for us to live with the intermittent uh sources of energy where yeah. we would be told, okay, like during the day, try to do as much as as you can of your daily activities. And then at night. Actually that's just a natural cycle for any anyone. Um, so mm. I don't see how that would actually go against the, the way we currently live.
0: Yeah, I guess the the thing is that like uh I, I'm just constantly aware of human nature and how rigid it actually is and how difficult it is to change um human nature and habits and our um I don't want this to sound negative but but our addiction to to all of the luxuries and the comforts that we've created for ourselves it's very difficult to break away from that and I was kind of wondering just sort of leading on from what you were saying Alice I mean one way one question could be a question to you Kuryama San which do you think is more likely like in the next In the next 20 years let's say is it more likely that we'll be able to change attitudes so that people adjust their lifestyles like that or do you think it's more likely that we that we develop uh, let's say battery technology that is capable of storing renewable energy intermittent energy so that it can power cities my personal opinion is that sure i mean i think i think innovation is at the heart of this i think you have to you have to innovate one or the other, either innovate um, batteries to that extent or innovate ways of influencing human behavior to that extent. But but uh, human human nature is a powerful force.
1: Yeah, at least I'd say that uh, we can foresee technological development. So probably for mm-hmm. the uh, advanced demand responses, key technologies would be um, predictions. So, for example, with a forecast, so we can mm. foresee that more accurate mm. uh, with our forecast. Much
0: better than it used to be, yeah. Yeah.
1: Also, probably our energy consumption pattern could be more, how to say, data In Japan, they, uh, actually, all houses are installed, so-called smart meters. Actually, data is getting to be accumulated into power companies then probably five years later that data would be available for public peoples then in that case prediction about energy demand patterns also more uh, sophisticated so then when we see matches between energy supply or energy supply predictions and demand predictions so we can allocate source of new energies Mm -hmm. into societies more efficiently. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, advanced demand response would be more sophisticated business models because utilities of energy consumptions are different by person to person. So Mm -hmm. someone think about, okay, I can shift this task to tomorrow because uh, it's not uh, urgent matter. So then I can Mm -hmm. do it when energy is available. So if that person can do that, that advanced uh, demand response would be also possible. So Mm -hmm. therefore this innovation is not only our psychological issues, but also about technological innovations as well. So then mm-hmm. that is why it's really difficult to hold mm-hmm. uh, actually. Mm-hmm.
0: Right.
2: Um just thinking about the um the use of nudges in um in sort of directing people's behavior. Uh and so you were talking about um how we could use data of our energy consumption in order to better predict our energy use. But also I've been um We've been working at the moment on behavioral insights and how maybe uh, social norms around our current consumption patterns can be um, influenced by little nudges. So, for example, for our energy consumption, if we see if we have actual information on how we compare our energy use compares to our neighbors or to um Yeah, to the local average uh, energy use, that can also be a sort of trigger for a lot of people to either diminish or just uh, switch around their um, energy consumption in a way that is uh, seen as the norm. Of course, we we have to keep on investing uh, into new technologies because um, there is a limit to what we can do in improving our um, the efficiency and reducing our energy consumption without actually having to sacrifice too much in our comfort and convenience. Mm. Um, but at the same time, there are some things that can be done, maybe that are still uh, not uh, being implemented enough. Um, and so, yeah, the more we get that data, uh, the more we can have a sort of awareness, but also at the same time, we we're, we're so flooded with information uh, in our everyday <laughs> life that there is also a limit uh, into how we can actually take into account every aspect of our consumption and all the sustainable impacts that it has
0: yeah but that's a great example of going with the flow of human nature because we are societal beings right so and and i know there have been a lot of studies showing how incentives which take into account our our desire to be a part of society and to kind of more or less go along with uh, what other people are doing can be a very strong trigger or nudge as you as you put it Kuryama-san, um, so did you want to respond further to that? If not, I have a, a completely yeah. separate question, but please go ahead.
1: Apparently, I didn't uh, make answers for long-term intermittencies. so... Uh,
0: oh, right. Sorry. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, that part actually compared to short-term intermittencies, we don't have enough ideas about that. That is uh, actually our reality. It's, We could be, anyhow, relies on fossil fuel or for the regions with plenty of biomass resources. So that region could use biomass resources. And also if there are plenty of renewable energies, so they can store renewable energies as a hydrogens or other types of fuels then the you know, energy is not sufficient compared to energy demands then the system will use that stored energies mm-hmm. anyhow we need certain amount of stored energies
0: mm-hmm. so the technology for hydrogen the technology is simply in an early stage now right so yeah so just one one word on biomass so this is probably the Renewable energy source I know most about because it relates quite closely to biodiversity um, in many contexts. So I'm, I'm not um, suggesting that it's not an option, but it does present quite big challenges to uh, land use because um, you know the land which is used to produce biomass for energy could be used for food production or or biodiversity uh, and, yeah. and other things, and it takes a lot of a lot of land to produce it. Um, I know that sort of maybe 20 or so years ago, maybe more like 30 years ago, it was everyone was very positive about it and then everyone got a little bit worried about those those aspects. But um, I didn't want to get into that too much. I also just wanted to mention we can't sort of not talk about nuclear energy uh, in a podcast that's about energy and, and climate. Um, my understanding, and again, it's very limited understanding, but my understanding of nuclear is that uh, the safety concerns of nuclear are less serious than they were made out to be in the in the 80s and the 90s but they are they still exist you know they they're not they're not zero the technology has become better but because of the kind of public resistance to nuclear um, that has really slowed down the technological advancement of of nuclear energy uh, so nuclear remains an option but it would be a much better option even if we if we put more uh technology more focus on on, on innovating and improving it um and at, but at the moment it's it's quite expensive it has other uh, issues attached to it so that's a long way of saying uh, asking you kuryama especially but also you alice if you have any thoughts on this um is nuclear should that be part of this equation or not
1: yeah that's also really challenging questions so regarding climate change issues there's a timeline so we have to be making net zero societies by 2050 so this is a really strong mm. constraint a limitation mm, yeah limitations mm. um mm. in that sense so if we invest nuclear plants, so anyway in that case we have to invest kind of Conventional or current types of nuclear power plants. So that is the reality when we see about twenty fifty net zero. So then, when we talk about the cost of current type of nuclear energy, the cost is getting higher and higher, owing to yeah, as you you said, the securities requirements.
0: Yeah. The regulatory, basically regulatory requirements, right, have just become yes make make it, make it more difficult to develop those technologies or put them yeah. into practice
1: on the other hand we can foresee that the cost of linear, linear energy is getting cheaper and cheaper until 2050s mm-hmm. so when i see those two uh, situations so investing new energy is much more attractive than nuclear energy so this is my feelings and of course Mm -hmm. when we see about 2080s or 90s we would be available about new types of nuclear power Mm -hmm. including fusion fusion, nuclear fusion so Mm -hmm. in that case we should not limit on the choice into You know, energies. So, but uh, right. it's a really long-term mm-hmm. uh, strategies to have mm-hmm. new types mm-hmm. of nuclear power. So, right. yeah. Anyway, you have to think about time scale of availability of those two technologies. Mm-hmm. So that is mm-hmm. my opinion.
2: Yeah, you were talking about the development of nuclear, but I think for maybe developed countries um this is something that can be considered uh mm-hmm. where we have more the capacity to de- develop that as well as the financial means too uh, but these are really costly and technical um to put in place so i was wondering what is what is the scenario for a lot of developing countries as they are developing their economies uh industries um what what do you think should be the reliable source of energy to be implemented large scale?
0: Can I just quickly jump in? Sorry, I know you were asking, Kuryama-san, but it just made me think, you know, I grew up in Cape Town in South Africa and Cape Town is um, it's quite, it's a, an anomaly. It's unusual in South Africa, it's unusual in Africa in that it's uh, powered by nuclear energy. Um, but there's a nuclear power plant there that's been going since... Uh, I think the 70s. So it's really old technology. So it just makes me think that if we had continued investing as much as, uh, investing in nuclear energy to the same extent that we were Investing in fossil fuels, then by now we would probably have much better nuclear energy than we have. And I should also just mention that when I say nuclear energy, I mean fission. You know, everything so far has been fission energy, right? With with all the waste-related issues that it carries with it. And Kuriyama-san was mentioning uh, fusion. I, I don't know much about this, but my basic understanding is that all nuclear energy that's produced, there's been used so far, has been fission energy, which produces waste, and fusion is something which. Um, They're making breakthroughs, but on a really experimental, tiny scale so far. And if that can one day be produced at an industrial scale, then basically all of our our energy problems are solved. But there are huge challenges, huge technical challenges to that goal, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. But Alice was asking about about whether you were talking about nuclear energy in particular, right? So fission energy and how and whether that's... uh, applicable to developing countries? And and if not, then what's their best option?
1: Yeah, actually, that is out of my expertise. Uh But at least uh, I can say that to install nuclear energies, there should be good governance to operate nuclear energy. So it's really big facilities. And if something happens, the impact is really big, and also long-term impact remains. Therefore, nuclear power does not arouse any mistakes. So that means that uh, operating nuclear power is really needs good governance as well a transparent uh, framework. So I don't say developing countries does not have that capacity. But Mm -hmm. even in Japan, the issues of governance is really key or high concerns about it. Therefore, when we install technology of a nuclear power plant, we have to consider not only technological points, but also those governance issues Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm.
2: So if nuclear is difficult to implement uh, everywhere, then what is the good energy sources? Might be my question. Well, I guess it depends on every national circumstance and what uh, resources they have.
0: Um, it must be to some extent, right? Because, I mean, if you think of a country like, I mean, okay, this is, again, a bit of an anomaly, but a country like Iceland, I think already is in, almost entirely run on geothermal energy, right? That is an unusual example, but then some countries get a lot more sun than others. Some countries get a lot more wind than others, you know, whatever. whatever. <laughs> there's, there's different um, different possibilities, I guess. Regarding the Asian
1: countries, so at least I know that uh, less wind power potential and high solar uh, potential, and also Asian countries compared to Japan, the temperature is kind of stable and also Mm. um, warmer than Japan's average. Mm. So in that case, they don't have large amount of consumptions for heating buildings so consumption electricity mm. pl- consumption plan is also different so in that case so solar PV could be a uh, really competitive options mm. for that countries I I, I feel I, I don't know exactly detail and also mm. developing countries um infrastructures of grid power grid is not so developed mm. so in that case, kind of mini grids or my role of mini grids or micro grids is more important compared to Japan. So in that case, PB plus battery system would be competitive. Mm. So, so
0: what, what does PB stand for?
2: Photovoltaic. Okay.
0: Photovoltaic. Yeah. Uh, okay. I see.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Okay. And also... Uh, regarding the residential sector, so that kind of system, so PV plus battery have a really great potential. But when we see, when we consider about industrial energy demand, the story is different. Mm. So probably PV output from PV is too weak or too small. So we have mm-hmm. to consider alternative energy sources or other
0: energy sources without carbon. So, you know, society has been on on a mission to uh, support renewable energy for a long time. Do you think that the SDGs, which have now been going for, how long has it been now? Um, Eight years? Has that made a big difference? The fact that there is an SDG on energy and an SDG on climate. Does that make a big difference to the political scene and the, the general global ambition, you know, to make these things happen? Yeah. It's
1: impact on the people's awareness about the uh, renewable energies. So mm-hmm. before SDG, so renewable energy is one of energy sources, but uh, when the people says about SDG goals, so real energy is more kind of, uh, close to our daily life. So mm-hmm. people tends to consider about how to utilize real energy into our life mm-hmm. and also, yeah, how the energies would bring benefit into our society. So people start considering the mean meaning of implementations of the energies, I guess. Mm-hmm. And also people think about what is a clean energy. It's, I think before SDGs, so clean energies includes both nuclear and, you know, energies. And mm-hmm. then after SDGs, so people think about not only energy issues, but also people think about uh, social issues. So in that case, the energy is uh, different from nuclear energy. So actually, both are uh, different types of energy. Then they are considered pros and cons of two separate energies. That is a, mm-hmm. a kind of big changes, I mm-hmm. feel.
0: I know in Japan there's been quite a lot of effort at the national and subnational level to promote the SDGs. So I guess that uh, not just energy but the SDGs in general um, have been, you know, used as quite effectively as a as a tool to raise awareness about sustainability in general. How about uh, how is the region, the, the Asia Pacific region, more broadly, doing uh, on on SDG seven? Also difficult to
1: answer. But my hypothesis is that uh, people thinks about more energy independent. In Asian countries, many communities consume fossil fuel, which imported from other countries. So, which means that uh, they need to always pay to bills for energy to other uh, places. So then, mm-hmm. if energy installed uh, they can change monetary flows Mm -hmm. into rural communities Mm -hmm. so that would be also a big benefit of renewable energies
0: so you're talking about asia in general are you saying that asia in general is importing a lot of of its uh, fossil fuel yes individually speaking yes Okay. And that's mostly, it, I, I don't know, but is that mostly within the region? Because I know China is a very big coal producer, for example, right? Um, yeah. and then, and then of course the Middle East is a very big oil producer. So, but you're, you're talking about across national boundaries, but maybe within the region, like between countries yeah, within yeah. the region. Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, of course, the okay. uh, IT is a more complex. So without Indonesia sure. yeah. also have a uh, plenty of fossil fuel resources and Vietnam, mm-hmm. they have coal. But sometimes mm. that hostel fuel is a resource for resources for getting foreign currencies, not for uh-huh. residential Mistake, uh, yeah. uh, powers. Mm. So actually, sorry, the complex, but anyway, for residential perspective views, so they can change monetary flows into more uh, uh, keep those money into communities. For example, when they install PBs, of course, there's some maintenance works required, so then they may hire some persons, but the persons are from communities, so which means that they pay money for the rural communities. Then if global crisis happens, then energy prices suddenly higher, so the communities keep Securing energies as it is. So, I think those benefits of new energies can be recognized by those SDG targets because SDG is a very uh, comprehensive and integrated mm. approaches to consider our societies or lives. So, yeah, mm. then SDG seven is particularly new energy is one of the SDG targets. Then people think about how. You know, energy contributes to our life, not only energy issues, but also mm-hmm. other issues. So this is a mm-hmm. kind of big uh, change of framework.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, looking at the relationship between SDG seven and SDG thirteen, is there is there any trade off between those two SDGs? Because you know, as countries, for example, in the in the region, um, improve the energy capacity. Then that's also, you know, has the potential to contribute more to climate change, right? So as long as they're working towards clean energy, then it then it's not. But if if you're only focused on uh, on on energy production, then of course there could be consequences for climate change, right?
1: Yeah, I think there's are also trade-off. So because one of the goal of SDG seven is. Uh, access to access right yeah. affordable energy, affordable energies. So, in mm. that sense, if speed of renewable energies implement a speed of implementing renewable energy is not too fast, so they mm. have to rely on other sources of energy. So, in that case, hosted fuel is one of the key options to, mm. yeah, secure energy access. So, mm. then in short term actually in developing countries still uh, there's uh, many plans to construct uh, hostile fire power plants so this is because they Mm -hmm. need to access to energies so therefore they need to develop new summer power plants so Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. is actually reality so there's a trade-off between goal 7 and 13. Mm -hmm. and also discussions between uh, SDG7 uh, energy issues and SDG13 climate issues, so actually there's a long-term discussion and also therefore many researches have already done, but those researches uh, relies on kind of energy system models uh, based on the cost optimizations of energy systems. So in that sense, one conclusion is It is efficient to keep kind of centralized system, then just switching to hosted fuel to kind of new fuel without CO2 contains. Mm -hmm. Or using hosted fuel with carbon capture and storage uh, techniques. Mm -hmm. So that kind of answer would be easily concluded using if we using current energy system model. Mm. But when we see SDG 7 as a, a kind of one of the target of all SDGs, we have to expand the scope of discussions about energy.
0: Thank you for listening to About Sustainability please subscribe at podcast.iges.jp or search for About Sustainability wherever you normally get your podcasts. If you've got feedback, you can review us on your podcast directory of choice or reach out on Twitter at I-G-E-S underscore E-N. About Sustainability is produced by the Institute for Global Environmental Strategies. Any views expressed during the podcast are those of the speaker at the time of recording and do not necessarily reflect the views of IGES. Thank you for choosing to spend your time with us. We don't take that lightly, and we hope you'll join us next time.